Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Women's football, Euro final, England versus Germany, Wembley, sold out stadium, and then to go on and win it. It was just insane. A lot of the chatter afterwards was, I really hope it's not the ACL, I hope it's everything else. I'd worked in the Olympic and Paralympic system for a number of years. No one had ever said the word periods, no one had talked about menstrual cycles. I've totally subscribed to best person for the job, but often the best person for the job could well be female, but society isn't ready for that yet. All I'm saying is that everybody should know how to swim. I can't fathom how you can try and say that that is troublemaking or anything like that. Every time I hear somebody talk about investing in women's sport and talking about it as if it's some sort of donation (laughs) or like charity. You're welcome. It's just such a weird way to tell me that you're bad at business. Welcome to the Telegraph Women's Sport Podcast. I'm Sam Quek, and in this episode, we're going to be discussing one of the hottest topics in women's sport, ACL. Three letters that can strike fear into sports people. An anterior cruciate ligament injury means a lengthy spell on the sidelines, and women are more likely to suffer from them than men. But why? Here to help me answer all of those questions are some stellar guests indeed. Our first guest won more than 30 caps for England and played in the 2010 Rugby World Cup, but she also spent long periods on the sidelines with injury. She now runs her own personal training company, specialising in female-specific programmes and has worked in top-flight domestic rugby, heading up Wasps S&C this year and next season will be moving over to Ealing Trailfinders. Hello, Fiona Pocock. Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming in. Listen, a tough season with Wasps just gone, but a really exciting opportunity with Ealing Trailfinders to, you know, go and do things basically from scratch. So give us a little insight of what's going on there. Yeah, as you say, it's going to be a fantastic opportunity to to build a new programme from scratch. I've got uh, headed up by Giselle Mather, who I think you had on recently. Um, She has set some very, very high expectations for us this season, bringing in all sorts of world-renowned players uh, and we're hoping to make our mark on the Premiership next season. Nice, and you've got obviously all the experience behind you, so you can relate to the athletes who are, you know, currently competing as well. Yeah, this is this is elite rugby at its best, and I think we're going to see the women's game grow more and more over the next couple of years. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well said. But we'll be talking a little bit more in depth as well about your experience when it comes to ACL injuries and also the management of them. Uh, We're going to introduce our second guest now. Um, He is a chartered physiotherapist who has worked in both elite and the grassroots
Sports Sport. He's helped set up the Sporting Knee Injury Prevention Programme after seeing an increase in ACL ruptures amongst teenagers playing sport. So we're going to welcome Tom Jacobs. Hello, Tom. Hello. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for joining us with your insight of knowledge for today's episode. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Um, So talk to us then. You saw an increase in ACL injuries and ruptures amongst teenagers. But what was your main motivation then for campaigning for change and, and, you know, hopefully making things better? Yeah, I guess um, the seminal moment for me was probably about eight years ago. I went to a um, talk by um, one of my um, friends, Will Jackson, who's a knee surgeon, and he he was presenting some of the information and the data on a recent study that was a big nationwide study over a 20-year period. And it saw this 29-fold increase over 20 years in the number of ACL reconstructions being done across the board. 29-fold increase, a, a, a curve that basically went... And a worrying subgroup of that was teenagers, which have not been a big um, bunch of the ACL data up until that point. The second sort of bit of data that hit me in the face, if you like, was that... 50 to 70 percent of ACL ruptures in, in in their entirety can be stopped from happening in the first place um, through wow, that's war- a big number, isn't big. it? Big, yeah. and I think that for me was a light bulb moment. And I, and 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 I look back, I think, well, this is why when I started caring about this mm. topic and uh, having ruptured my own ACL and been through the rehab um, process, like two esteemed guests here have also. Yeah, we're in a in a, a reasonably sized club of people who play sport. Um, who end up doing that. And I thought, okay, if it can be prevented uh, and it's not being done widely, certainly in grassroots and amateur level, then um, something should be done about that. So we so we decided to, it was a couple of years on from that, we decided to mm. get together and, and form a charity. And the rest is history and you're kind of sat here now with so much experience behind you, mm. seeing so many different journeys and how ACLs have you know, impacted people in so many different ways. Mm. Uh, and you said that we're also joined by another guest who we've not heard from. She's a Premiership rugby player and international for Czech Republic. Tess Brownerova is our third guest. She's also employed full-time by the RFU as a senior accountant um, and did her ACL the season before last and made it back to play this season just gone with Wasps in their final year at the top flight. And also Fee's partner. So that's a nice dynamic that we've got here on today's pod. Um, thanks for coming in, Tess. Um Unfortunately, that was the last season that Wasp were going to be playing in the Prem 15s. What's in store for you then? Because the men's team kind of went under, unfortunately that had an impact on the women's team. So are you looking for a new club? Could you, could you be going over to Ealing with Fee? Can you give us a bit of an insight exclusive? Uh, I can. Firstly, thank you so much for having me. Very happy to be here. Next season's looking a little bit undecided for myself yet. Mm. I haven't quite figured out what I want to do. Um, the the Premiership, the, the fact of the matter is that the Premiership is currently growing. Women's sport is growing. Women's rugby is growing. And there are more and more full-time athletes in the Premiership, um, which for people like myself who are juggling full-time work, it becomes difficult. It's a massive time struggle. So I'm still a little bit undecided what level of rugby I would like to play, um, toying with the idea of dropping down to the championship and playing there. And actually very on topic, part of the dynamic in that decision is things like SNC provision, um, physio cover around injuries, having just come back from such a serious injury. That is something that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about because mm. as I've learned firsthand it's incredibly important specifically in women's sport and in women's rugby yeah really important and we're definitely going to unpick that shortly 
Um, we're going to get cracking then and start talking about ACLs and the different um, parts of life that you've all had experience in. Uh, but before we do, um, we spoke to Dr. Emma Ross and she gave me her view on how big of an issue it is that only 6% of sports science research is on women. I mean, we published that paper a couple of years ago now to show that only 6% of sport and exercise science research is done exclusively on groups of women. And that's an issue, right? Because if we don't know what's happening in women's bodies, then we can't think about what to do about it. But for me, there's also this gap between what we know in the research already and what we're actually doing on the ground. So we do know quite a bit. There's a program called the FIFA 11 Plus, which is kind of like a conditioning program, which FIFA developed. And then subsequently, lots of other people have developed similar programs, which aims to three times a week, make sure girls are moving in the right way and that they are developing strength and power and agility in the right way to help them be less likely to be injured. And that program was researched and it was shown to reduce ACL injury by 45%. But I can guarantee if we walk around all of the football clubs, you know, on a Saturday or a Sunday morning, there isn't enough of that being delivered by coaches from grassroots right through to elite performance. So part of this is that we don't know enough about girls and women's bodies. And part of it is that, are we actually doing enough with what we do know? So again, there's there's lots of talk about how the menstrual cycle impacts injury. And we know a little bit about that now, not as much as I think people would hope. Um, one study in particular that was four seasons worth um, following the England team um, and showed that there was a slightly higher prevalence of injury in uh, the time of the cycle that's just before ovulation. And there's also research from physios and people like that that show that our joints become more loose and lax at that same time of the cycle. So just before ovulation in about the second week of the cycle. That's good information. But what we actually don't know is why, you know, there is a high prevalence of injury, maybe at that time of the cycle, because we do know that the hormones can influence the joints. But we also know that hormones can influence our behaviour. So when we're, we're looking at the menstrual cycle, just before ovulation, we tend to have more motivation to move our bodies. We tend to be kind of more confident. We take more risks. And what if it's that that's kind of showing up in terms of injury? What if we're on a pitch committing to more tackles, being slightly more up for it, being slightly more aggressive in our play? So we don't understand what it is about the menstrual cycle that might be influencing injury. And then finally, for me, I think we have to look at the game and say, yes, we need more research into women football players. Absolutely. But also, as the great game has grown, are we supporting the players well enough for that kind of new look game so whether it's the fact that there's only one or two football boots that are made for girls and women's feet specifically I mean when girls and women started playing football a lot of the big brands just shrunk down their male boots and said well now it's available in a size three it's a woman's boot but actually when we design football boots and the brands do it brilliantly they put a lot of science and technology in they measure specifically the size and the shape of men's feet the power and the speed that's going to go through those feet, the muscle mass that is in the body that's attached to those feet, the limb length of the body that's attached to those feet. And all of that is different in men compared to women. And so we can't just shrink down the boot and say that it will work for women because what, what it's actually doing is holding the average man, it's gripping the average man to the ground. Whereas a woman who is usually shorter, has less muscle mass, will produce less power and less speed, you don't want her being gripped too much to the ground. Otherwise, that's when knee injuries occur, when your foot gets stuck. So why aren't the brands and why, you know, why hasn't the game 
as it's grown, created this urgency for kit that's really working for women and not increasing their likelihood of injury. So I think yes to more research, please, please, please. We need to get that 6% up. But also we need to translate what we already do know into action on the pitches with the girls and the women who are playing the sport. We know enough to make a real difference. So, yeah, that was Dr. Emma Ross there talking about a number of things where research can be improved when it comes to women in sport and lots to unpick. And I thought, you know, I saw you all nodding away, you know, from strength and conditioning programs that are being put in place so girls can be moving in the right way, uh, hormones, so the time of cycle uh, and understanding the new look gain. So things like boots and equipment. I'm going to come to you first. Is there anything that stood out to you where you thought, actually, yeah, absolutely, if we start covering and researching more into this, it's going to have a good impact when it comes to preventing or stopping ACL injuries? I think from a research point of view, I, I think Emma's hit the nail on the head, really, because we've got, we know enough. I mean, there's lots of, because everyone wants to know why, right? When you see a massive disparity between men and women in injury rates, and, and you look at different data and you'll get different statistics, but somewhere between two and eight, times more likely to rupture ACL if you're a woman. Even if that's, I mean, a lot of the data looks at three times more likely. Even that is like loads more than men, right? And boys. I mean, that's something that cannot be ignored. In the scientific data, we can't be 100% sure right now why. And that frustrates people, and I understand that that's, that's frustrating. But of the different explanations, whether that's hip width, whether that's to do with hormone cycle, like we've heard from Emma, whether that's to do with the trochlear notch, so the bit of the knee uh, where the ACL ligament comes through is a bit wider in women, uh, whether it's to do with the actual thickness of the fibres of the ACL, which is not as thick as in men. You, you can look at a lot of these causal factors, but we haven't got a 100% explanation. We don't know concretely which factors explain the difference. But one study that I found interesting, a systematic review that was done in Spain in 2017, and that showed that m the more elite the person, as in the more conditioning that they do, the smaller the disparity between men and women. So as you go up in eliteness, if you like, where there's more essence, there's more conditioning, there's more strength, there's more movement literacy, the numbers become much more equitable between men and women. And I thought that was a really illuminating piece of work. And that suggests that if we get that bit right, we can bring the level down to a more comparable injury rate so that women aren't so disadvantaged. And even when you do that, if you look at the men's data, I think we still have some concern here. We can't ignore the fact that whether you're a man or a woman, in sports generally, particularly field sports, rates are too high. And with any sport comes risk. And we have to acknowledge that. I love sport. I'm a sportsman. Not at the level of you guys. Um, but um, our responsibility for people who are voices within this sector is to think about making sport as enjoyable, accessible, whilst mitigating obvious risks. And I think, that, I think that we can do. And we can do much more on the taking action point. Uh, and it seems to be the low-hanging fruit that we can do something with. And, that, and that's um, something I'm particularly passionate about. What do you feel? I mean, you, you, you've gone from a, a strength and conditioning, uh, you've gone into a strength and conditioning world from being in an elite sport and you're still in an elite sport. What, what's your, how do you see this? Well, I feel like you've read out of my notebook there because I literally have low-hanging fruit and movement literature and strength <laughs> on my notebook. Um, because you, I you, swear I didn't look. <laughs> because I, I agree with you there. That, and I think that's where we can 
make a big difference in the young and adolescent group is getting some interventions in earlier into into their PE lessons and even that grassroots upskilling the grassroots coaches who don't have an SNC background that's where we can make a, a really big difference because young boys and adolescent boys are definitely getting that mm. uh, strength in their earlier in their sporting careers that'd be fascinating I wonder if it is because you know boys are you know more likely to take up sport during break times at a young age running around playing with footballs that'd be interesting but I digress uh Fee for anyone who is listening to this pod who may not have experienced elite sport or an ACL injury whilst doing recreational sport can you give us a little bit of an insight of almost how it felt or the experience that you had when you basically did your ACL it was extremely painful and I knew instantly that I had done something catastrophic. Um, and was it a case of were you running or was it an impact injury? It was it, it was in a tackle. I was being tackled and my foot got snagged and I got twisted. Nothing really I could have done about that. Some injuries are preventable, I'd say, but I think that one was just rugby. Mm-hmm. Uh, got, um, I got got by rugby. <laughs> and... Um, it, a lot of the, the the chatter, you know, people coming up to me afterwards was, I really hope it's not the ACL. Hope it's everything else. Why? Where where does that come it, from? Do you think it's it's because it, it everyone knows that it's a lengthy and arduous journey back to back to sport. Mm. Uh, you're looking at nine to twelve months out of the game, and the game moves on a, a hell of a lot in that time, and it's a bit of a death sentence for some. So what does that nine to 12 months look like? So from the point of diagnosis, you've got the news and you're thinking, oh, right, here we go. This is going to be a bit of an uphill hill battle. Firstly, it's to try and get surgery as quickly, quickly as possible. Fortunately for me, I was um, insured and I got seen within the week and I had surgery the following week after that. Um, not so lucky for some. Um, I've heard some of the waiting lists at the moment are more than six months and that really really makes a yeah makes a a big difference in some people's careers they that might be the difference of returning and you know and not so I was fortunate in in that case to start with you are straight in a brace on crutches but walking immediately which is the blessing about an ACL versus something bony you're sort of encouraged to get on your feet as, as soon as possible and then it's just building the strength getting the range back in the knee systematically body weight squats single leg squats add load add, then you can go into running then you work on your speed like it's very very methodical mm, with lots of setbacks I can imagine and, and tough times along the way so when it comes to the actual anatomy of the knee when you talk about an ACL that's the case of surgery the ligament needs to be reattached to the bone or do they take it from your hamstring sometimes people have surgery on their hamstring and Tess you're nodding away there so I'm going to come to you <laughs> what was your experience after surgery and, and that that journey I think I was one of the lucky ones. I didn't have a huge amount of pain after surgery. Don't get me wrong, it was obviously painful, but Mm. in terms of pain tolerance and pain management, um, I was able to sort of get up and walk on crutches the next day. I was able to be fairly mobile. um, And I, I had a hamstring graft, so they took from the same leg that they were doing the ACL, so from my left side, they took the hamstring. Um, and actually the hamstring was initially the most painful part just straightening your leg was extremely painful and even silly things like sitting on the toilet seat that's exactly the point of the hamstring that didn't realize, that really you? hurts yeah. um, so it was almost the hamstring that was more of the issue early doors and then obviously that heals relatively quickly and then the knee becomes the the, the thing you focus on for the next nine <laughs> how months how did you do yours? 
I also did mine in a tackle. Um, I think very different experience from Fee and I think worth mentioning. I didn't know that I'd done anything particularly serious. Um, I was offloading out of a tackle and similar sort of was hopping back on one leg as I was being tackled. And there was a bit of a twisting element. Um, but I thought I had maybe hyperextended my knee. I didn't think too much of it. Um, didn't didn't really have a huge amount of swelling. Didn't really have that much. Um, had pretty good range in, of motion. Played a rugby game on it two weeks later. And all before realizing um got scanned maybe a, a month after i did it and then then had the news um which was obviously really hard to take because i felt relatively close to normal and i think that's that's the warning sign and acl can look like fees did where you know something really mm. bad has happened but it can also not look like much and i think that's that's also the risk that it goes undiagnosed and unrehabbed in the right way and then obviously that puts athletes at further risk of doing other injuries whilst they don't have an ACL. I mean, Tom, can you paint us a picture then of why there's two different experiences here when it comes to ACL injuries? Mm, yeah, I'd say fee's more typical of it being a, a painful injury when it happens. Typically, people would describe it as in a pivoting motion, sometimes a pop noise or a giving way sensation. Um, mine was a bit more like Tess's though, actually. I, I, when I snapped my ACL, there was a pop and I was twisting at the time and someone came in and, and knocked into me in a football match. Um, and my leg felt a bit weird and loose, but there wasn't really much pain. And, and it was six months later that I actually ended up with, uh, with an MRI scan because my leg had, I was sidestepping in another match because I was trying to play again. So I thought it, I thought it's swelling had just gone away. Was, and I wasn't really clued up on these things at the time. I was a bit younger. And then my leg spontaneously gave away when I sidestepped, completely buckled. And that hurt like hell. Um, <laughs> and that was really, really not very nice. So then I, I was then quite surprised getting the MRI results six months later to say, actually, you've snapped your ACL. I was like, oh, great, right. So that was unexpected. But I'd say the majority of people will experience more like fees experience. It's like a sudden event, big swelling. That's, that's one of the characteristic things that people, which is a little bit unique to an ACL injury, is you get a big fat knee. Sometimes it's contained within the capsule of the, of the joint, and then you're, you're unable to straighten these. So that's an atypical presentation. Um, but it feels very tight and, and stiff. Most people experience quite a big, big swelling. There's been quite a few... ACL injuries, like you talked about before, the prevalence is becoming more and more. There's been some high profile, should we say, women's athletes who are footballers recently who have been in the news from one particular club, which was Arsenal. So you have Vivian uh, Miedemar, Beth Mead, uh, Leah Williamson and Laura Wienreuther. Four athletes, you know, within weeks, all having an ACL injury. Again, in football, it was a quarter of the players shortlisted actually for the 2022 Ballon d'Or have been sidelined with ACL injuries. Again, Tom, I'm going to come to you. Is this something that you see within, is it the sport or is it female athletes who are potentially more prone to to this type of injury? I um, I think we have to be cautious when then there's high profile things that go on, not to draw too many quick conclusions from them. My gut instinct is to apply some caution and not make it too much of a storm in a teacup. Because I think if you look at the bigger data, and, and the FA, I think, have actually um, got some figures on this, where um, ACL rates, rupture rates, are actually going down for elite players in, in football. Uh, and that doesn't surprise me too much because they're well looked after. I think this is probably a mixture of bad luck and people who happen to be in the spotlight. The, the flip side of that is it's kind of 
as much as it, it, it's really sad for those players, especially the timing is really unfortunate. Mm. But I think it's quite good to bring it into the public eye. Yeah. And that certainly for those of us who want to try and change things on a public health level, and particularly for children and teens and people who careers and their and their and their sporting lives ahead of them it gets us talking about it and that's that's a good thing yeah and hopefully encourage more research and more money into women's sports yeah 100 percent. um women are between two and eight times more likely to suffer an anterior cruciate ligament injury fee before you went into what you're doing now so the strength condition side of um helping others did you know that that was quite a significant number did you did you realize that women are more likely to do acls as a player, I wasn't aware of, of a disparity in, in the risk. For, for me personally, I was still an amateur at the time um, I did my ACL, and that was a factor. Um, I'm going to hypothesise now. I know we shouldn't say in black and white terms, but I went from being very amateur uh, to training from like a couple of times a week to being on that cusp of professionalism mm-hmm. where my training intensity, training volume, uh, number of matches, number of match minutes skyrocketed. Um, and I, I imagine that might be a factor in football that we're seeing at the moment where the game has just gone boof mm. and um, these players are required to, to play more and mm. the squad size isn't necessarily where it needs to be in order to have that depth and those, you know, giving those players the rest they might need over the course of a long season. That's, that's, that's my sort of guess. And as we mentioned before, you are together, Fee and Tess. Fee, from your experience of having an ACL and, you know, doing a lot of research and coaching into what you're doing now, Tess, have you had a lot of input on that side of things, either warranted or or not? Um, I think, I mean, hopefully the input was definitely the other way around, where I received a lot of support from Fee when I did mine and a lot of both support of someone who's done it which is incredibly helpful because mm-hmm. it's a really scary thing to go through um, and also of all the things that she knew I did go and do a huge amount of research after doing my ACL that's very much my approach know as much as possible um, so I think there there was a lot of conversations about ACLs and did you know this fact and he would be like yes yes I did and I'm like that's crazy is there anything that surprised you when you did the research I was looking for a way that you could make the nine months shorter And I did a lot of research on studies where they and unfortunately, all of the studies that I read said that it really you are at a much higher risk if you go back pre nine months. It is possible some elite athletes do do it. But for myself as an amateur, it kind of it became very clear that it was out of the question. What it was useful for is understanding the reality and beginning to accept the reality and accepting what my next year was going to look like. I think for that, it was incredibly useful. Um, and having fee reinforce some of the things that I maybe didn't want to hear mm. as much um, was really useful for me. Yeah, and, and fee seeing Tess's experience and kind of being there supporting her. Is there anything that you see from her journey to your journey where you think, oh, I wish I would have had that input or that research was around? Is, is there anything that you would change, touch wood, if you had the same ACL injury now? I think the research has come a long way uh, over 10 years, but I, I think I wish that I had had Tess's uh, ambition to um, tick every single box possible along along the journey. I'd, I'd come off the back of uh, another injury preceding mm-hmm. this one, um, so I 
mentally, I think I checked out a little bit from from the rehab, and that's why it took me a little bit longer. So you fractured your knee in 2010, mm. and then you did your ACL in 2013. Mm-hmm. Is that right? So that's a really it was my really second game back after two and a half years. So the thought of having to go through another lengthy rehab mm. uh, was really really draining. So that's that's one element I think I wish I I'd I'd had back then. But I, I made a return. It took me a little bit longer. It took me 12 months instead of the nine. But, um, I, I mean, I got there. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of um, specific strength and conditioning and and all the diagnostic testing and, and things like that and the screening, I, I had all that. I was very fortunate that I was in the, in the, like, in elite rugby at the time. I don't think that level of diagnostic care had filtered down into the prem and amateur level yet which it has now which is really good and you can access all sorts of expert strength and conditioning coaches and diagnostics and and things like that as even as an amateur there are the resources out there um which is which is huge everything that you went through like you you talk about that injury in 2010 to then your acl happening a few years later has your journey and the passion that you have for this type of area did that motivate you to start up FIPO HQ? 100%. That's that's my fuel every day for trying to bring resources uh, into the fold for all, all women rugby players, all walks of life, all levels. I still think there's a big knowledge gap in strength and conditioning for women's rugby. Yes, we have it at the elite level and it's filtering down to, to, to the level below, but it's still got a long way to go. Mm. And I, yeah, I, I think part of that is just providing the educational resources that people can make their own decisions and make their own training programs to to make them at, at the least risk possible when they when they go out on the field yeah and um tom fees you know trying to achieve that even probably a, a, across the board when it comes to women's sport but you know more so in rugby um how can we reduce the risk of acl injuries then across all sports because like we talked about previously just then about football, we're seeing it more and more often because is it, you know, the amount of time that they're spending on the pitch, more training, more competition. I guess that's literally just a, a small thing when it comes to reducing the risk. So I think that if we look at making an impact from a public health perspective, we've got to go younger. If we prevent the injuries, particularly in the younger groups, not only will we be stopping a good percentage of these injuries happening, but we'll also be giving these children and adolescents some of the movement literary skills, the body awareness for them to take forward into adulthood. We have enough information showing that these prevention programs, these physical conditioning programs, which take as little as 10 minutes to perform before a training session or match, they have effectiveness and, and they all work. And we've got strong data, but the uptake across all children's um, and grassroots amateur sport is way lower than in other countries. If you look at what the UK grassroots sports is, is doing, it's way lower. And, and Australia, Scandinavia, even USA, um, Switzerland, a lot of these countries are doing loads, loads more of this type of stuff. It's just embedded into, into grassroots sports. And we've got some work in the UK to catch up. Yeah, so the resources there in the UK, it's just whether people use them or not. Is that the case? It, that is the case. Although I think on a political level, there's been some some reticence or uh, a little bit of lack of action. So the research arm of FIFA called FMARC, um, they released the FIFA 11. And, and that was done in 2004. They said that all of the national football bodies across the world, 
need to implement this into grassroots. And it's still not happened in the UK. That's 2004. We're now 2023. And if you look at the coaching handbook for grassroots sports, for football Mm -hmm. in the UK, it's beholden upon the coaches after every match to record the state of the corner flags of the match. And there's not a mention about warming up in the right way. We, we've got something wrong. It's, yeah, it's just, it's the same like PE teachers though, isn't it? I always remember everyone, even now, when you ask a group of young children to warm up, they all roll their eyes, they do a quick half lap of the pitch and ready to go. But it's like you say, you need to start implementing these things to prevent injuries, well, to lower the risk as well when you talk about young children, teenagers. Well, co- like you say, coaches have got to be the main stakeholders in this. I mean, they are the ones who are with the kids, you know, on, on a weekday evening or on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning. And, and they're the ones that kids are looking up to and going, OK, what do we do now? And, mm. and, if, and if the coaches aren't aware, which you wouldn't expect them to be, I mean, loads of physios aren't even aware of this. So why would, a, why would a, a, an amateur sports coach? Then, then we, we, we've lost before we've even started. But I think I think... Getting the awareness out there is a big, big thing. Yeah, putting people in the right shape, the right mentally and physical shape to, to go ahead and perform and reduce that risk of um, an ACL injury. Tess, I'm going to come over to you now. That first hit, when you come back and you're in full contact, whether it's football, hockey, netball, that first collision that you've had since you're in full contact, you're back with the squad where you want to be. Talk us through that moment then, especially in rugby, when you get that first hit. What's going on in your mind mentally? So I think the big bulk of the work is actually done way, way before you get to that point. So thinking about going back into contact was something I probably thought about from day one post-surgery. And I think it's a mental journey more than anything else. It's kind of you're imagining it. You feel your body starts to feel more and more capable of doing it as you tick off each stage of ACL rehab. And luckily, ACL rehab is incredibly regimented. So there are really clear cut stages. And as you go through them, you start to feel more like maybe I can play contact again. Maybe I won't get injured when I do it. And it just step by step, you kind of get there. And to be honest, you're so you're so sidelined for so long. You're so desperate to play that I think, uh, especially in in my case, it was the desire to play overrode the fear. Mm -hmm. Um, Not by much. There was still fear there. And the first contact session you do, because obviously you don't just go straight straight into a game, but the controlled levels of contact, you kind of, you know someone's coming at you, you know I'm about to get tackled right now. Sometimes those are actually worse because in a game, your brain is thinking about tactically, what am I doing? Technically, what am I doing? Where, Where can we do have opportunities? Um, whereas in a contact drill, you're literally bracing as someone is coming in to tackle you or you're getting tackled. And that sometimes the psychological effects of that are harder. So once you've done that bit, when you're in a game, you're actually not thinking about it. Mm. And you, you kind of finish your first game and you're like, oh, wow. Adrenaline took over. Is it? <laughs> it's over, yeah. But the interesting, the interesting thing that happened for me was I... Re, I like hyperextended the same knee six months after I'd come back. So I'd been playing, no issues, had a small hyperextension, which kind of resulted in the popliteus at the back of the knee was a little bit strained. And it hurt in a very similar way to the ACL. Oh, what's going through your head then at this point? And I freaked out, like freaked out internally, not externally, um, but definitely was panicking inside that I'd done something bad. Yeah. 
Physios assessed me, checked the ACL, no issues, reassessed it a few days later, no problems at all. It was sore, but actually the process of getting me back into playing, which only took a, a week or so, it was a minor, minor thing. What really struck me was how the the effect was psychological. So Fee was with me, she was get, doing me to come, um, doing a return to to play, and she was sort of saying, okay, go run over there at 50%, do this, do that. And so often... I would just, I would stop. I would just pull up, not through pain. The knee was fine. Through like a block in your mind that thinks that you're hurt, but the pain hadn't kicked in yet. I was like anticipating the pain that hadn't yet happened. And I think that was when I realized, okay, I haven't, or the the impact of my ACL is something that's clearly still in my brain in Mm. some way. And most of the time it's completely subconscious. I don't think about it. But in that moment, it just dawned on me that, like you said, um, it's something that does stay with you, that there is an impact. And I think it's ever so important if we can take away the process and young athletes having to go through it, then that that will give them so much more confidence in later life. Because it is once you've done it once, I think there is it is in the back of your head throughout the rest of your sporting career, which, yeah. Would you, would you say that throughout your sporting career for all three of you when when you're competing is it still there where you think oh personally no um, what about yourself I, I, I don't think when I'm on the pit I think yeah. I agree I'm, I'm concentrating on winning the damn main match and, <laughs> and, and, and never having been in that quite so elite setting uh, I perhaps didn't confront the what we call the the graded exposure so exposing yourself to so what we do with the athletes in, in rehab as you know is to expose them to vulnerable situations in a controlled way. So cutting off of one leg or landing with a pivot, all the things where you think, oh, you know, is my knee going to buckle on under me? And I think if that's done really well, and you both sound like you had a really, really good rehab, which is great, then I think that the burden of the chance for being a bit of a monkey on your back that you carry with you is, is a lot less. See, I think I'm a little bit like Tess. Like, I don't, I think, so I did my um, ligament, which touches my collarbone to my shoulder early doors and every time I land on it in a certain position I think oh and it's it's not that you don't that you feel like your body's going to fail on you but it does go to the back of your mind or certainly does mine I think it's I don't think I think about it during but I think in the back of my head I have definitely adapted my training with the view of making sure that my load management is where it needs to be making sure that I'm hitting the right gym sessions that I'm doing the prehab that I'm I think if anything it's off the pitch before I get onto the pitch that I but that's I'm just more aware being responsible, is it not? But as an, an elite player, thinking actually I've had this injury, I'm, I don't really want it to happen again, so you are putting in the hours. Well, yeah, Prehab? The guys I play five-a-side with, like, I, I tell them that these warm-up, and I show them how they should warm-up, because I say, look, don't they long, do do this. And the only, ones, the only ones who do it are the ones who've had the ACL ruptures. There you go. So but it's so there. true, it's yeah. so true. We play in a, in a mixed touch team. And we're the same. There are a bunch of ex-rugby players. We all turn up 20 minutes early. We're all doing our FIFA 11 on the sidelines. The rest of the people think we are absolutely mental. But all of us are like, not again. no, we're not, we're not taking any chances. Yeah. Like, if I'm not warmed up, I'm not playing. Fascinating, isn't it? Fee, I mean, you focus specifically on female-specific training, uh, especially around the menstrual cycle. Have you found this, when you've really looked into it that actually, you know, there's a strong case here for ACLs and time of the month when it's happened? 
from your experience working with people or so my first-hand experience um i haven't seen a correlation necessarily just in my environment i work with sort of 40 plus athletes at any one time and i haven't noticed that an injury has occurred because on a particular day of the month but i know that this research does suggest that mm. um i think we're still scratching the surface on that um but we we know enough that there are particular times in the menstrual cycle where where um we are more more at risk per se what we can do about that is still being debated and when you're working with a with a large squad it's very difficult to bring in interventions on an individual basis i think we're at a point where we just need to educate the players on their own menstrual cycles, and that includes tracking uh, menstrual cycle length, symptoms, um, how you feel at a particular time. If you if you need more more sleep, or if you need to be more hydrated, you know th- these are all very simple ways that players can manage themselves, rather than having to change large points of, of a training program to, to suit an individual's need in a in a squad context. Um, that's definitely the direction that it's going. And more full-time staff and people look like delving into this particular area is going to make a big difference. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, tweaking individuals' programs as as they go is is going to be really useful. Yeah, there's massive power, I think, in tracking menstrual cycle. I'd never really took too much notice until I actually tried to get pregnant and your cycle and how it does impact you physically. And I think if I would have done that and empowered myself when I was playing elite sport, I think it would have definitely had an impact whether that's injury performance and things like that so yeah here's to more research i guess even if you know when you're going through your ovulation phase your laxity in your joints is said to be more so simply extending your warm-up doing more activation uh, making sure that around that time you're getting more recovery and your food is absolutely on point these are all little, little things that we can actually uh, make a difference with how you're feeling around training because you can't just not turn up to training when you're feeling a little bit, you know, off. That's mm-hmm. not going to go down particularly well, but you can do all the other little things. There's also good news on the research front is that um, ACL's injuries is now popping up um, higher up the priority list for the decision makers on their research funding. Okay. Um, so the James Lind Alliance is a, an organisation that informs research budgets and they met earlier this year in January and um, in the top 10 of topics for research, ACL injuries was on there. So um, I'm certainly hopeful that this um, manifests in more UK budget, if you like, as a whole being spent on on this important um, topic. No, it really is fascinating how the menstrual cycle can impact ACL injuries. Um, And another point that Dr Emma Ross touched upon uh, earlier on just then in the podcast was about the mental impact it has so times of the cycle where you might feel a lot more confident going into a tackle um you know more on the front foot deciding actually i'm going to go in i'm going to do that do you know much about that side of things as well as the physical yeah i think um mentality going into training and going into matches is absolutely key in the outcome of that both in performance but also the risk that there might be um if you're if you're lacking in confidence because you're feeling a bit fatigued or you've got cramps or one thing is your coordination has gone to shit you can't catch a cold you know they're all things that's <laughs> <laughs> they're all things that are going to contribute to you not feeling on top of your game mm-hmm. and that's where you might not be fully in the game and you're actually thinking about something else and often that's when an injury might occur you can definitely tell when it's happening we used to call it the red sash 
So, you know, like we just wanted to try and trap the ball and it just wasn't happening. And you just put your hand up and say, I've got the red sash. And then in the gym, they'd wear the red, um, you know, the massive bands, like a sash. So everyone knew. So anyway, that was one more point. Um, I mean, you do feel it and you do know that difference. Tess, do you have an experience, especially because rugby, there's just so much contact, isn't there? I think definitely since coming back from my ACL, I, I track my menstrual cycle quite meticulously and I am quite aware of how I feel at different points in it. And there's definitely, now that I've been kind of really watching it for about a year or so, I've really noticed that there's times of the month where I am feeling a little bit more vulnerable, should we say, a little bit more hesitant, a little bit like things hurt that little bit more. Um, and I've really had to do a lot of work pre matches in getting myself out of that mindset and getting myself into a I am strong I'm aggressive I'm not afraid what do you do to get yourself there I mainly just visualize a lot of visualization and a lot of thinking through that there is no actual factual evidence that I am weaker that there is anything happening that it's and I actually get it at a completely different time of my cycle than the research says I should so I kind of work through the fact that there is Nothing that has happened to me personally that should suggest that I am more at risk today than any other day. But it takes it takes a little bit of time. It takes some work. But I definitely never want to go into a game feeling hesitant because, like you say, with rugby specifically, it's it's such a contact. It's such an aggressive game. And it's so confrontational that you, you have to go on the pitch believing that you are or at least can be in any given situation stronger, faster, more dominant. Otherwise it's a struggle. So I think the mental prep is really important. And it's it's just important to be aware of it. I think if you are aware of it, then you can take steps to mitigate it and to not get yourself into that into that situation where you're a little bit unfocused, a little bit worried and not paying attention to the game in front of you, because that that's when you're at risk, not when you've kind of realized it and taken steps to override it. Yeah, that's an amazing place to be to empower yourself to understand that it's okay to feel like that. Like you say, nothing. you've not become weak overnight or you've not become a bad player overnight. That's a really, really, really interesting point. Um, and another thing that Emma talked about was things like equipment, so boots, football boots, being made originally, more traditionally for men and actually to make it, you know, fit the female foot, but just put it down a few sizes and make it pink perhaps. Um <laughs> How important is it, Tom, that actually things like this are taken into consideration because she touches on, you know, different um, lever size, distribution of force. I suppose that is really quite important, isn't it? I really think so. And and I mean, when it comes to ACR injuries specifically, these are what we call external factors, um, like, for example, playing surface um, equipment that people are wearing. If I'm honest, there's not a lot of evidence at this point um, that they have a big impact, but we don't yet know. And I think it's very sensible that more time is spent looking at, at, at boots, for example, because it makes logical sense. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose biomechanically, women are different to men. Yeah. Um, it's very sensible to look at equipment differences because they've been researched heavily for men. Mm -hmm. And we need to make sure that we're doing right by women for that. Um, the other thing is uh, the, the, the playing surface. So there is some evidence showing a higher injury risk on synthetic playing surfaces rather than grass playing surfaces um, on grass sports. So that also, I think, needs to be looked at as well. as another external factor um, that is more to do with um, the people who are responsible for 
the the, the pitches, the equipment, you know, the, the the brands, as you've mentioned already, and and those people need to step up and also um, put put some funding into this and and, uh, and making sure that we're we're not doing harm where where we could be. I mean, how have you found it from, you know, what has originally always been? Oh, it's a male-dominated sport. Men are strong. We can play rugby. The equipment-wise, and I came from a footballing background. It was a case of, well, it's lads. It, it, it just, you know, if you if you want a new piece of kit or a new pair of boots, it's just go to the boys' section. Go to the boys' section. And I can imagine that was probably the same in rugby. Oh yeah, I, I spent my entire career in a boot size that was half a size too small because I was in junior size five, and the next one up was a six and a half men's boot. <laughs> so I, it, it's tough, and I think we'll 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 see these brands producing more female specific equipment they, they have to it's in their interest too and proof will be in the pudding when when we're wearing all of these boots and we can do the injury sort of surveillances and reporting and and, and we'll see what happens yeah do you reckon there'd be a difference do you reckon that from your any particular boot that you prefer where you think oh this is just made for a man i mean i certainly still get it with kit even at club level now oh you can buy a new kit and it's like oh brilliant and then it's oh it's it's unisex no, it's not. It's just, it's just, it's a, it's men's kit, it's which has got a few smaller sizes in it, and you, the unisex extra small is enough to, yes. to fit. I can't get my thighs and, size man, yeah, yeah. and I can't get my thighs and bum into it. But the length's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I think you still get it now. Like I was recently browsing to get new boots, and you kind of go, okay, I will click on female boots, and then you pop up with the choice of four, and you're looking at them, being like, okay, well none of these brands work for me or I don't like any of these. Mm. And then you revert straight back into, okay, well, I'm I'm going to look at men's boots. And luckily they've expanded the size ranges now that, you know, it can, it can fit my five and a half in a men's size. But it certainly, yeah, certainly would be very, very beneficial to have some female-specific equipment out there, especially in the footwear department. Because I think with in terms of rugby there's several brands out there now that are specifically looking at female shorts we've we've come on um, like leaps and bounds in terms of the 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 shirts that we wear and the way that they fit and i think footwear is an area that's been somewhat left behind so i think there's definitely still a little bit of work to be done in that department because just seeing people in good footwear when you see people out running children playing sports i think that's really important isn't it i guess when we're talking about all these different things how to prevent acl injuries we have covered an awful lot in a small amount of time. Um, as always, if we did have more time, we could literally delve into this further. So I just want to say a big thank you for everything that you brought to the podcast. Thank you, Tom, Fee and Tess. You've been listening to the Telegraph Women's Sport Podcast with me, Sam Quack. The producer is Shira Kilgallen and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and Sarah Mockford. For more women's sport content from The Telegraph, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash women's sport.